Welcome to the Vegan Dharma Podcast. I am Laura Nadia, the Vegan Dharma Coach. You're about to hear from an amazing human, a story of how they embody their soul's purpose. Open your mind, your heart, and your soul to receive this message today. First, let's take three deep breaths in through the nose and out through the mouth. Breathe in through the nose, out through the mouth. Inhale, exhale, inhale, letting your belly get nice and big with air, and gently release. Now we're grounded and we're ready to invite our guest. Enjoy. I'd like to welcome Dr. Yami Kazorla Lancaster. She's based in Washington State, and she's a board-certified pediatrician and fellow on the American Academy of Pediatrics, as well as a board-certified lifestyle medicine physician. She's a health coach with multiple certifications in plant-based nutrition, the founder of her pediatric medical practice called Nourish Wellness, the author of A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, a speaker and podcaster of the Veggie Doctor Radio podcast, and the creator of VeggieFitKids.com. So welcome, Dr. Yami. Thank you so much for having me. We're so honored to have you here, and I can't wait to dive into all things kiddos and pregnancy and veganism. So can you start off by telling us about your journey into becoming a vegan? I've been vegan for over 10 years now, and it really started as an experiment. It wasn't something that I had ever really envisioned myself becoming. I didn't know anything about it. When I first tried it, I didn't know even one single other vegan. In fact, that term was very new to me. But what inspired me and what went into my mind when I thought of adopting this lifestyle was I was reading a book called Born to Run. At the time, I was doing a lot of long distance running, half marathons, eventually marathons. And I kind of got into the barefoot running movement. I wanted to try it out. I've dealt with plantar fasciitis. So I thought maybe that could help me. And in that book, they have a couple of concepts that were intriguing to me. One was the Tara Umara, which are indigenous group in Mexico. And they are the running people. They run for fun. It's part of their culture, but they subsist on a predominantly plant-based diet because that's what they have access to because they live in the middle of the desert. Another character in the book is Scott Jurek, who is a famous vegan ultra runner, ultra athlete. And when I was reading through this book, it just hit me like, maybe I should try this and see what happens and how it feels. I didn't really have any preconceived notions of what would happen, but I just wanted to feel. So I thought I'm going to do it for 30 days. I didn't tell anybody in my family. And what was most surprising is after the first three or four days my chronic constipation that I had had my entire life for 30 years of my life that I thought was genetic and ran in my family was cured. So that was a huge relief, literally and figuratively. And I just felt great. And it's one of those cliche things that people say and just sounds like you're exaggerating, but it was so true. I had more energy. I was happier. I felt like my mood was stabilized. I, in general, a person that has big mood swings just because I have big emotions, but it felt more stable and more controllable. And that's when I started to read more. So I read Diet for a New America. I read The Kind Diet, started looking at the documentaries, of course, Forks Over Knives, and then more of the ethical documentaries like Earthlings in the Cove, 
And by the end of that 30 days, there was no turning back for me. I knew I had found something that I was meant to do my entire life. I just didn't realize it. It just naturally aligned with who I was. It naturally aligned with my personality. And I just really delved into learning as much as I could. And it took one more month beyond that for me to delve into the science literature, into the policies and all of the studies that have been done on children on whether it would be safe for them. So I took some more time to decide if it was okay to convert my whole family. And that was at the end of two months. And now it's been 10 years. Wow. So happy decade of being vegan to you. And thank you. What a fascinating story as well. I love the nod to the Mexican indigenous running people. How cool. And you were born in Panama, right? So you were born in Panama as a young child and then moved to Texas with your family when you were a kid. So what was it like growing up as a kid yourself in these two very different cultures? What did you learn about health and well-being from being in Panama and then being in the United States? Well, it's interesting because I spent every summer with my grandparents in Panama. So I pretty much grew up in both places, one foot in Panama, one foot in the United States. I was raised as an only child. And when I was with my grandparents in the summer, I was their child during that time. But I've always loved to eat. I've always loved food. And I've always been very enthusiastic about food in every country I've been in. So that's never been a problem. In Panama, the foods are naturally more aligned to plant-based, but it's not necessarily always healthy because there's a lot of foods that are fried and a lot of dairy can be used at times. But these are the foods that I grew up with. The interesting thing about growing up in Panama as well is that my family in Panama are dairy farmers. A lot of people think that might be weird because I'm vegan and my family still raises cattle for dairy and still has an active dairy farm. So I was raised with the belief that dairy is great and not just from the American influence, because, you know, in the United States, we have been told for decades that milk is a health food and that all children and adults should have a certain amount of dairy, especially females and postmenopausal females and things like that. But then I had that added on to by the fact that my family did this as a business. I think that was the big block for me that I had to overcome that belief of you can't survive without dairy. Like dairy is essential for health in order to fully embrace veganism. Wow. So the family being dairy farmers, how much deeper can you get, you know? So I'm sure people that are watching this that may be pregnant or breastfeeding or have young children are thinking about milk in general and what are the differences between human milk and breastfeeding and then transitioning a child into, you know, a whole food diet versus feeding them dairy from cows or goats or whatever animals that we are using dairy from these days? What's the difference between breastfeeding and the nutrient components in human breast milk versus dairy? Well, the most obvious thing is just that each mammal makes milk for their own children. And I think that's not something that we think about a lot in the United States because we're told that you have to drink milk. But human milk is ideal for human babies. That's what it's made for. It's got the perfect breakdown of fat, of sugar, of protein to help little babies grow. But even human milk has hormones in it. But it's the hormones that are good for humans and it's in the amount that's good for humans. Cows 
are way bigger than humans and they have different components. They have a lot more casein. They're going to have a lot more growth hormone. They're going to have a lot more the estrogens and progestins in there that are meant for baby cows that only drink milk for a certain amount of time. And during that time, they are rapidly growing just like human babies are, but even more so, right? Like they're huge animals compared to us. So I think even if we just take it from a common sense standpoint, like this is made for a cow and this is made from a human, that that's the very first place to start. But being trained as a pediatrician, it was drilled into my brain that kids must have milk, that it has calcium. It's just like the perfect food. And so you don't question these things. You don't question it because people that have come before you tell you that that's the right thing to do. I really didn't start questioning it until I realized there was another way, even though for several years in residency and as an attending physician, I was seeing the problems that it was causing. But this is what I tell people is that we have to be careful of what questions we ask and what boxes we place things into. Because if you start with the assumption that everybody must have milk because it's the best thing, then you're just going to find pathways to do that, right? If you start instead with the question, what is the ideal food for a growing human? What's going to benefit them the most with least amount of risk? Maybe we wouldn't end up with cow's milk suggested so often. What I see in babies that are breastfed, even if you are a breastfeeding mom, which thank you so much for doing that. I know not all moms are able to do that. I know it's a big sacrifice. And so thank you for all that are able to nurse their children and hang in there even when it's hard. But if those moms are consuming cow's milk products, whether it's cow's milk, cheese, yogurt, those kinds of things, proteins from that cow's milk is transferred through the breast milk. And there is a percentage of babies that will become sensitive to the cow's milk protein. And they can have blood in their stools, colic, abdominal pain, even growth problems because they're vomiting and having diarrhea. Even if you're not directly giving cow's milk to your newborn, it can affect them if you are drinking it as a nursing mom. So it starts from there. But then once the babies wean off of breast milk and you're told, okay, it's time to give them whole cow's milk, then new set of problems happen. Constipation, abdominal pain, diarrhea in some kids. So then it's just like on and on and on, more percentages of kids are having these issues. But if we make the assumption, well, everybody should have cow's milk because that's the best thing, then we'll just find ways to make it so that they can have cow's milk. So I'll give you an example. As a young pediatrician, something that I recommended often was to make a quote, purple cow, which is once you're starting to give your kids milk, you just put prune juice in the milk, mix it up and give it to them so that it doesn't cause them constipation. So that was the workaround for the issues that they were experiencing with the milk when the workaround could have just been, don't give them cow's milk. You know, but that's not, that wasn't an option at the time for me because I believed at the time that it was necessary to have milk. Wow. Purple cow. <laughs> when you were going through med school, you became pregnant and gave birth to your first child, right? What was yes. that like? And 
what perspective did that give you being pregnant and giving birth and then having a baby while you were still in med school? Like what was different from the way that you were thinking and approaching what you were learning about medicine and nutrition and pediatrics versus your med school classmates? Being a parent is definitely one of the most humbling experiences of my life. One of the hardest experiences in my life. And it's definitely something that has taught me the most. I have a lot of degrees, so I've done a lot of school and I love learning, but my children are my best teachers. I was just telling one of my parents yesterday, they're expecting a baby. They haven't had a baby yet, haven't experienced that initial. They're pregnant right now. And he's super excited about having his baby and he feels very ready, which I love. I'm glad, but I thought I was ready too. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah, I'm in med school. I can stay up late. I've missed sleep. I've got this. And once my baby was born, I realized a whole nother level of sleep deprivation that I did not know was even possible. And you can't hand your pager to somebody else and go take a nap. The baby's on. You're like 24 seven on call. You know, it definitely has given me so much empathy. So I wasn't yet a pediatrician when I had my baby, but I can't imagine not having the experience of being a parent because it gives me this level of empathy that there's no way I would have had. You just don't understand what it's like in the middle of the night, 3 a.m. You've already haven't had good sleep for three days because your baby's sick or they're colicky or whatever. Then you really start thinking about those choices of like, should I bring the baby in bed with me just so that we can get sleep? You know, those things that as pediatrician are like, never do that because, you know, sudden infant death and never do those things. And if I didn't have that, experience, I think I would have probably just judged everybody and been like, come on, not that big of a deal. Your baby should never come in bed with you. But I totally understand that now. And the other thing that it's really helped me in is feeding kids because I have my son that I had by birth. And then once I became a pediatrician, I have a son that I adopted and they're very different in their eating and feeding styles. And so it's given me a lot of perspective on what it's like to feed kids. And it's really helped me understand intuitive eating and the division of responsibilities and that way of feeding children that's healthy, but also joyful for everybody in the family. Absolutely. And you're definitely a trooper for going through all those experiences, especially at once, you know, uh, med school and pregnancy, childbirth, taking care of the kids and adopting a child as well. So were your children vegan since birth or did you have to transition them? And if you did have to transition them, what advice would you have for any parents that maybe they're transitioning their family to a plant-based lifestyle, but their kids are already used to eating meat and animal products? What should they do? How do they transition smoothly? Yes. So my children were 18 months and six years old when we transitioned. And like I said, I have two very different eating and personality types of my kids, but I'm lucky. It was really easy in my household because my younger one, who I would say is the more selective feeder, was already leaning towards plant-based. So when I first adopted him, I had to bulk him up a bit because he was very small and malnourished, which can happen in international adoption. He did not want to eat meat. <laughs> so the way I did it is I just pureed it and mixed it in with the stuff that he really loved. One of his favorite foods after I adopted him was lentils. And, you know, he still loves beans. So yay. But at the point we weren't plant-based yet. And I thought, well, meat's the thing you have to give to kids to bulk them up. Right. And so I would grind it into his little meals and force it in him. 
but he was already leaning towards that way of eating. He liked it more. And so it was a natural transition for us. My older one, he's literally not picky. He loves everything, almost every single thing I make. And my husband, very agreeable man, so lucky. And so really our transition was smooth. And I think that they were young enough and not really invested in the outside food world yet. People are going to come from all different places. So if your children are small, if they're toddlers or they're infants, you're not going to have a problem. Just start changing the way you're cooking. You don't have to make a fuss about it. Just change and everybody's going to go along because you're pretty much the one in charge. The hardest age groups, I think, is going to be middle school and your high school. So into that adolescence period. And the reason is because they're already used to a certain way of eating. Most families have habits and behaviors that they've established over years and decades, okay? So it's just the way of life. You have habits and behaviors. But just the same as if your kids are small, you don't have to make a fuss about it. You don't have to announce one day, we are not eating any more animal products and we're going to go vegan because I assure you that you're going to freak everybody out. (laughs) So just slowly start changing. Talk to your family about how you are going to make some shifts. But I recommend not forcing people into a certain path. If you have a family that everybody's already interested in it, then yeah, maybe you could go a little bit quicker. You can change overnight. But I would say for those that have older kids, you're going to have to do a gentle transition. Make sure that you are making meals, selecting things that taste good, that are abundant, that are filling, and emphasize what you're adding rather than what you're taking out. So instead of saying, we're not going to eat any more meat, we're not going to eat any more dairy, no more eggs, everybody's like, ah, what are we going to eat? You know, because we're used to that being like the main part of all our meals. That's the framework that we operate in, in Western countries. So instead of doing it like that, say, you know what I heard from Dr. Yami, because you probably have heard from me, how beans are super healthy. I'm a bean pusher. I want to start cooking with some more beans. What beans do y'all want to try? Should we try chickpeas? Let's see all the different ways we can make chickpeas. Let's roast them. Let's make hummus. Let's put them in soup. And instead, that's going to be exciting and inviting. And it's going to inspire you to think in a different way. And people aren't going to be scared. So that's the advice I have. And then the second piece of advice I have is lead by example. If you're enjoying your food and you're happy and you're joyful and you're feeling good, you don't have to push it upon anybody else because everybody in the family is going to notice and they're going to be like, what are you eating, mom? That looks really good. Can I try a bite? So leading by example, doing the gentle transition, emphasizing what you want to add, and it's going to go much smoother for you. Yeah, great tips. And you're so right. I think people forget sometimes that children by nature are curious and Mm -hmm. they get excited over new things so easily. So if you bring to it this element of, ooh, what is that? That looks interesting. What's that made out of? Why are we eating this tonight? Then it can be a fun transition and less of you can't eat that bacon. (laughs) Yes. What about in social situations? Does this come up with your clients at all that they feel like, especially with the kids that are going through puberty and then the teenagers are feeling like they're getting socially pressured to change what they eat or that they feel restricted when they go out? And what would you recommend that they do in those situations? Yeah, so this happens a lot and it's normal because adolescents don't want to be different. They want to be the same. So this is a normal part of development. (laughs) You want to be the same. You don't want to stand out. 
And because of that, teenagers either might feel some social pressure or you may get pressure from outside parties, whether it's friends or family saying you're depriving your child. So every family needs to decide on their own what their comfort level is. If you have a child that's been raised vegan since birth and now they're a teenager and they want to experiment, it might be wise for you to let them do that, but it's okay to set some rules. I don't want animal products in my house. So if my kids get to the point where they want to try stuff, I'm like, fine, go for it. Just don't bring it to my house. Or you can have something that if they bring it to the house, they have a special cubby they put it in or something like that. There's no right or wrong. You can just decide how you want to do it. But what I recommend is not telling a teenager, you may not do that. And especially not telling them you're bad for wanting to do that. That is a recipe for disaster. If we shame children or we make them feel bad, or even if we health shame them, because I feel like sometimes people think that this is acceptable. If we say things like, you know, if you eat that burger, you're going to get heart disease. That's probably not a good thing to do either. I do recommend talking to children about health and about how foods can benefit us and what risks are associated with certain foods, but not to go to the next step and say, if you do this, this is going to happen to you because that really can lead to more of a seeking behavior where instead of children not wanting to do something for their own inner feelings, their own intuition, they're either going to do it more because they feel like you don't want them to, or they can go the opposite direction and even develop disordered eating like orthorexia. So we have to be cautious about that. And like I said, there's no right or wrong. As your children develop, as they grow, as they go through all these different stages, you're going to be presented with different challenges. So it's okay to every once in a while, periodically, twice a year, once a year, sit down and decide what's our approach going to be about this now. My kids are in preschool. What's my approach going to be for parties, birthday parties? Because you know, there's one like every weekend. What's going to be our method for that? Okay, my children are in middle school now. Now they're in high school. They're driving. How do I talk to them about food? It's going to change as they grow and there's no right or wrong. So you just have to decide and be methodical about it. Yeah, good point. So your book is all about intuitive eating as well. So can we define what intuitive eating means and what does it mean for children? Because I think that has been coming up as a trending topic for young adults and adults on eating things that you feel called to eat and noticing how your body reacts. But how do you approach that for children at various stages of development? And how do you empower them at different ages on how to make the best decisions they can for their own bodies? So intuitive eating is a concept that was developed by two dietitians. They wrote the first edition of the book in the early 90s, but really they were working on this for a decade or more before that, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. And really it's a way of eating. It's a system that has 10 principles associated with it. And it's really more of a weight neutral approach to eating and to respecting your body and having joyful movement and all of that. It was really created for people who are stuck in the yo-yo diet trap and have either gotten to disordered eating or maybe even developed an eating disorder, and they need a pathway out of this. They need a way that they can eat to nourish themselves and learn how to tune back into their bodies. Because in our country, we are very used to not trusting ourselves, feeling that we need to either count calories or count macros and those kinds of things. So that's what it was initially developed for. But 
if you pay attention, you'll notice that children are naturally intuitive in their eating. And what I mean by that is that they respect their hunger and their satiety. They're not saying, oh, what time is it? It's breakfast time. Oh, I, I have 500 calories for my breakfast. What am I going to eat? They don't think like that. Only us adults do, okay? When a baby's born, it cries or it shows cues even before it starts crying that it's hungry. We notice that. We feed it. It shows cues when it's done. It turns away or it starts crying. It's like, don't feed me anymore. We respect that. But as they start to get older, we start to also lose trust in them. And we don't believe them whenever they say that they're done, they don't want any more. Or especially if we have a larger body child, we may start to restrict their eating. So for children, what I mean by intuitive eating mostly is respecting that hunger and satiety and avoiding pushing them into diet culture. This is really important because parents do develop a lot of anxiety around feeding their children and it becomes this power struggle the dinner table becomes a very stressful place, tears everywhere, including from the parents. And so I, I really wanted to write this book as a way of supporting parents and allowing them to realize that there is a way to feed our children that's more joyful. Intuitive eating has been misunderstood. I think a lot of people believe that intuitive eating means, oh, I feel like eating hamburger. That must be good for me. I'm going to go eat a hamburger. That's not what intuitive eating means. Intuitive eating means I notice my body, I am in touch with my body, I eat when I'm hungry, sometimes I might eat a hamburger, but because every time I eat a hamburger with bacon and fries, I feel awful, probably most of the time, I'm not going to be inclined to eat a hamburger. Because when you are truly eating intuitively, you are tuning into your body continuously. It's not just, oh, I'm hungry, I'm going to eat, and I'm just going to eat whatever's there, or every single time I'm going to eat ultra-processed food. That's not what it means. It also doesn't mean that we are somehow like psychic or have this ability to choose specific nutrients out of food. That's not what it means. So in order to feed yourself in a way that is health-promoting, you do have to have some knowledge. You do have to understand a little bit about nutrition. You don't have to go overboard. And like I said, get to that point where you're orthorexic and you can never have some processed food or something, but you do have to know some general concepts when you're feeding yourself and you're feeding your children and it ebbs and flows and there's no perfection. That's a very key point to all of this is that it's not about perfection. Okay. Like you're never going to be a perfect feeder for your child. You're never going to be the perfect eater. So that is a general way to explain intuitive eating and how I apply it to children. Yeah, wonderful. So how would you empower children at various ages on how to apply intuitive eating in their day-to-day -day lives? Well, children are born intuitive eaters. If we support them from the beginning, we don't have to do anything. But if we're at the stage where we've been telling our kids, eat more, you need to eat all your broccoli, you need to do this, you can't eat that before you do that, then we learn how to back off. And I like to teach families the division of responsibilities, which was created by Ellen Satter. And what that means is that parents and children have their own set of responsibilities. They have their own jobs when it comes to feeding and eating, and you don't cross over into the other one's autonomy. So the parent, their job is to decide what, when, and where. 
What am I going to feed my child? What's going to be my flexible feeding schedule? Where are we going to do it? Are we going to sit at the table? Or are we going to sit at the breakfast bar? So I'm going to choose a meal. Say I'm going to make some black bean enchiladas with some roasted broccoli, and I'm going to give them a glass of fortified soy milk. I offer this to my child at the dinner table. My job is done. Like literally I am done at that point. I can be like, Whew, I fed my kid lunch. I'm good because then I need to zip it. My child then takes over his role and his role is going to be to decide if and how much. He's going to tune into his body. Am I hungry? How hungry am I? Does the broccoli look appealing today? Do the enchiladas look appealing today? Do I want to just take a couple of sips of my plant milk or do I want to drink the whole thing? I'm not going to go back in and cross over into his autonomy and say, oh, you didn't, you had need to drink that whole thing or you can't have your milk until you eat all your broccoli. I'm not going to do that because my job is done. I've already done the part that I do. And if I cross over into his autonomy, then I'm teaching him that he can't trust his body and that helps him unlearn intuitive eating. So if you haven't been feeding your child that way, you take steps to get back towards that. And at the beginning, things may feel a little chaotic until each party learns to trust. You're going to learn to trust your child. Your child's going to relearn to trust themselves. And that's how you can help protect and form that intuitive eating for a lifetime. That's where it starts. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. And I can just imagine some of the parents listening that are like, well, yeah, I, I would like to do that. Or maybe I've tried to do that, but then they don't eat. And then I get concerned that they're not going to get the nutrients they need. So how do I make sure that they're getting enough nutrients and they're not protein deficient? They're not calcium deficient. Right. That's why you have to have trust. And for the most part, children, as long as they're typically developing children, there's always going to be exceptions to this. Okay. So there are going to be some children that either have genetic or chromosomal disabilities or developmental disorders where they literally don't have the mechanisms available to feed themselves properly. That definitely exists, but that's rare. It's not very common. The majority of children that are typically developing whether they are a smaller body child or whether they're a larger body child already has everything they need inside of them to determine how much they need to take in. But we follow the division of responsibilities. We feed our children on a flexible structure. We're avoiding this whole all day grazing thing. We're avoiding caloric beverages between meals because that takes away the appetites. So when they get to the dinner table, they're not hungry. But if you're doing all those things and they legitimately get to the table and they're not hungry, why are you going to force your child to eat? They are tuning into their bodies. They know how many calories they need. And over and over and over and over again, believe me, because I do this every single day, parents are very, very worried. How can my child be eating enough? Sometimes they barely take a bite. Sometimes they don't eat any dinner at all. I look at that growth chart and they are perfectly tracking, perfectly tracking on their growth. This happens over and over and over again. So I trust children. I know that they know how much they need in order to support their metabolism for growth and play and their development. But now parents need to do the same thing. And really, if they do it, it's going to be so much less stressful for them. They're going to be happier. They're not going to be anxious. They're going to realize that everything is okay. Now, it is important for vegan families to realize that there are some nutrients that might be lacking if you're eating only plant foods. And so we can give our child a supplement for those things, but generally that's not a problem. Besides that, I would just feed a variety of whole plant foods, 
can use some processed foods here and there. They can be useful, especially in the little ones when you're on the go, those kinds of things. But you do want to make sure that you're giving an abundance and a variety, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds. Make sure that they have access to that. You have to do your part, plan the menu, go grocery shopping, prepare the food, offer the food, but trust your child. It's going to be more harmonious and joyful in your household. Yeah. So you mentioned supplementation as well. So what supplements should vegan parents be giving their vegan children? And what are your thoughts on multivitamins as well? Because I remember eating those, you know, Flintstones gummies when I was a kid, and it seems to be pretty ubiquitous these days that everybody is supposed to have a multivitamin. So is that true? Everybody should do a multivitamin or should they be getting other supplements? Should they be separate pills? How do vegan parents navigate the supplement world? Great question. So if you are raising a plant-based vegan child, you need to make sure that they're getting sufficient B12. Now, my preference as a pediatrician is to give them a supplement. You can definitely get it from fortified foods. But like I said, if you are going to just depend only on food, some days you're going to freak out because that fortified food, they're not going to have any of it. And then you're going to be stressed out and anxious. <laughs> so this is just to help families get that supplemented. The second one is going to be vitamin D, which is going to be important for the majority of children, those exclusively breastfed babies, they absolutely need it. And then depending on what part of the country or the world you live in, you may be at risk for deficiency here in Washington state. We definitely are because half of the year, we're not going to get enough rays from the sun to make enough vitamin D. The other one, we're still waiting on more formal recommendations from this is going to be omega-3 DHA. Definitely the pregnant mamas need to be taking that probably our toddlers. And after that, it's plus or minus. So that's one to consider. Thankfully, there are vegan sources coming from algal oil. So you don't have to eat fish oil or eat fish for this. And then each family, depending on their particular styles of eating may have ones that might be important, such as iodine or zinc. But really, if you're eating an abundance of foods, your child doesn't have food allergies, you're not restricting a certain class of the plants, then really those are going to be the three main ones. I like multivitamins. And the reason I like multivitamins is because I'm practical. I'm a mom. I'm a very busy person and I don't have time to be giving three or four different supplements. I like to just get it all in one. So that to me is worth it. You just want to make sure that you look at your supplement, you work with your healthcare provider and make sure it's got adequate amount of the things that are most important, which is going to be the B12 and the vitamin D. And if you know that your child regularly does consume fortified foods, you may not need that much of each one of those components in the multivitamin, but I feel that it tends to be easier. They tend to come in formulations that are easier for kids to take or more appealing because it doesn't matter what vitamin you buy. If they don't take it, it's not going to do you any good. So I don't think it's a bad thing. And maybe you don't need all of the components all at once. As long as what's in the multivitamin is safe and not the types of nutrients that can build up too much, which most of the time children's multivitamins don't have those that you shouldn't take at high doses and they have them at low doses anyway, then I wouldn't be concerned. You just need to figure out for you what's going to be the best way to do it in your family. If you decide just to do individual nutrients, you can also just do like a once weekly B12 or twice weekly or something like that. That's also an option. But in general, vitamin D, I think it's best if we are taking it on a daily basis. 
Yeah, great. So you mentioned working with your healthcare provider to determine the right course of supplementation. And that in itself generates a question that some people might be thinking about is how do I choose the right pediatrician and who better to ask than a practicing pediatrician on this? And you're probably going to be getting some requests from people for consults after this airs, but obviously you can't take everyone. So if they decide I don't have a very supportive pediatrician and we're transitioning to plant-based diet, or they're just looking for one in general, what are your tips for finding the right healthcare provider for family medicine and for pediatrics? It can be tough. The majority of physicians, pediatricians, we're trained very traditionally. We don't get as much nutrition education and we're taught certain concepts that are like drilled into us. And when people aren't following that, we get stressed out too. And it's not because we're mean, it's because we were taught that bad things are going to happen if you don't do that. So we weren't appropriately taught the principles of nutrition and of prevention of chronic disease. So it can be tough. That being said, in general, if you have an open-minded healthcare provider, then you can talk to them about these issues that you're transitioning to a plant-based diet, offer to bring them a book or refer them some articles that might help them understand what you're doing. But really some of the things like supplements, they're just very straightforward questions. How much vitamin D do you recommend my child have? If we are not consuming meat, how much B12 do you recommend that my child have? And you don't necessarily have to get into the full deal of we're vegan, plant-based, those kinds of things. The other thing that I recommend often is to go to the online websites where you can look for healthcare providers that are either plant-based themselves or friendly to plant-based. Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine has one on their website. Also through my website, veggiefitkids.com under the resources, I link some there. And then there are now some telehealth platforms in the United States and the UK that have all plant-based doctors that you can get a consult with if you're having any specific problems. So plantbasedtelehealth.com, they're linked in my website. It's really great because now you can actually meet with a provider, whatever state that you live in. Unfortunately, in the United States, we can only practice in the state that we're licensed. So most people that reach out to me, I can't give them medical care because I'm also a health coach. I can help from a coaching standpoint, but I won't be able to order labs or prescribe medicines as a coach. Thankfully, more and more resources are available and there's more doctors that are learning about this. But unfortunately, what I hear most of the time is providers who aren't super supportive and I'm sorry, I'm hoping that will change quickly over time. Yeah, thank you for providing all those helpful resources. And what else do you hear from your clients? What are some common questions that they bring up with you about either providing a plant-based diet to their children or issues that they've been having in raising their children in general? I think we've covered a lot of main ones, but of course the big one is going to be the protein issue. (laughs) So I'm just going to say it because I know everybody's wondering about it. But really, when it comes to protein, I have zero concerns. As long as your child is consuming sufficient calories from a variety of plant foods, they are getting more than sufficient amounts of protein. So don't be worried about that. And don't feel like you either have to give them meat or only have them eat beans or nuts to get enough protein because all whole plant foods have protein. They just have them in varying percentages. So as long as your child is eating sufficient calories, they're getting enough protein. So I would say that's a big question that comes up a lot. 
the school lunch and parties and, and all of that comes up. One thing that I hear a lot from certain families is that their children might be teased because they're bringing their own lunch. And I really think that this changes depending on what school your child goes to. And there just seems to be different personalities. My children have never been teased. In fact, my children are usually the advocates for plant-based nutrition. And they do like little trades here and there and other kids want what's in their lunchbox. So I, it can't be that bad, right? So I think I get that question a lot and they need to decide for themselves what's going to be best for their child's, not just physical well-being, but their emotional well-being. And so if they really are getting bullied, what can we change? Can we make it so that the plant-based meal looks more like a non-plant-based meal by using some meat alternatives and cheese alternatives? You can have a ham and cheese sandwich that's all vegan. Everything exists now. There's vegan chicken nuggets. There's vegan fish sticks. There's everything. So can you use some of those, even though they're more processed products, to help your child with some of these social interactions? or just talk to your child and help their mindset. There's all kinds of different strategies. So that one comes up quite a bit too. And of course, the supplement question, which we've already covered, but I would say that those are the main things. So you mentioned getting bullied or teased. So that might send a few people into some worries that it's more common than it actually is. So to balance that out, why don't we talk a little bit about this successful experiment that you did in turning yourself vegan so you did quite a bit of research that really swayed your own opinions and kind of disproved some stuff that's already out there about what's true about nutrition. So can you go over some of the key takeaways from that, that really solidified why you were going to go vegan and make sure that your family was vegan? Yeah. And I'll just go back to what you were saying. This is what people reach out to me about when it comes to kids getting bullied and teased. It's never happened to me. It's never happened to anybody I know that's vegan. This is all people reaching out to me. So I don't know if there's just clusters and pockets, or maybe it depends on what kind of school you go to, those kinds of things. Or that maybe there's some kids that are more susceptible and more sensitive to that. Maybe sometimes something's been said to my kids and they don't care. And so they don't even mention it, you know, but I've talked to them about it. And they're very happy with how they eat. So I don't want it to seem like it's a common thing but I do hear it and I get that question. So those are ways to approach it if it happens to you, but hopefully it won't. Now, when it comes to my own transition, the main thing was getting over the milk thing really, <laughs> because I felt like being vegetarian was probably fine. I had never really tried to be vegetarian, but I think it's more acceptable, you know? Well, it's fine if you don't eat meat, just have a bunch of dairy, you know? And you'll get enough protein and you'll get all the nutrients. And that's what I believed. But then you're not having dairy, you're not having egg. Oh my gosh, are you going to get enough nutrients? Like your bones are going to disintegrate. And I realized that all of that was completely false. Not only do you not need to eat those things, you can thrive without them. Especially dairy is the number one source of saturated fat in the American diet. So when people are struggling with their cholesterol, they're struggling with heart disease, they're struggling with diabetes. A lot of it's coming from dairy products because we eat it all day long, whether it's our milk or the tons of cheese, double, triple cheese pizza, I mean, like basically pretty soon. I think pizza is just going to be like 90% cheese and maybe just like a little bit of crust, but you know, that's kind of where we're headed. But I realized that we've just been completely misled in these areas. And for my own experiment, seeing how it cured my constipation, which I had really suffered with, and I had to take medicine for every day, 
that went away. And I never expected that to happen. No doctor had ever talked to me about that or recommended or even thought that that could be a thing for me. So it really opened my eyes into knowing that sometimes we have to look beyond what the current beliefs are, what the current health beliefs are in order to find what's best for us as individuals and as a collective as well. And then when it came to children, I found too that there's nothing in the policies, there's nothing in the literature that says that children cannot be raised plant-based in a healthy manner. It's just that most doctors don't know about it and it's not what's taught to them over and over and over again. We're not taught, yes, it can be healthy. We're taught, be very cautious. It's more likely than not to cause problems, which I don't think is the true representation of plant-based nutrition. So I think that doing the reading, doing the research, understanding, and as I grow to understand more and more about this way of eating and this lifestyle, I feel very confident that it's a way that you can raise your child to have good health, well-being, and longevity, because I care very much about that as well. As a pediatrician, I'm only seeing kids until 21 years of age, but I want them to live to 80, 90, and 100 feeling good and without chronic disease. So I feel like it's my duty when they're young to help build those foundational building blocks that will set them up for longevity. And one of the ways to do that is by eating more plants. The plants have the fiber, they have the antioxidants, they feed our gut microbiome, they keep us hydrated. That's where to be. And in our country currently, children are deriving 70%, 70% of their calories from ultra processed foods. So we are very far from a plant-based diet in our country. And that's why sometimes it may seem radical or extreme <laughs> because it's not the current reality, but I support families. I do want them to educate themselves and learn about it and make sure that they're doing it in a way that will help their children thrive, but also that will lead to harmony and joy at the dinner table. And that's why I do the work I do. Beautiful points there. And I love what you said about examining our beliefs and not assuming that what's currently out there, especially with health is current and up to date and true. And when we were talking earlier about the most common thing parents do is obsess over whether their kids eating enough and eating the right things. But then you take a step back and you realize that, especially in this country, in the United States, that we have this obesity epidemic and that the number one killer is heart disease, which is largely a preventable thing based on your lifestyle. Then we have to start thinking about what are these things that we're saying to each other and believing. And if I'm constantly worried about my child eating enough and trying to force them to eat more, but I'm looking out there and seeing that most people have trouble with being overweight or obese in this country, then maybe there's a link there. Maybe we need to make a change and step back and look at how we're approaching eating altogether. So is there anything else that you think that every vegan family should know? Well, I want everybody to leave this presentation with a positive feeling and to feel encouraged and empowered. And as a pediatrician, I truly believe that you are doing the best you can. And I thank you for being the absolute best parent that you are being for your children, because believe it or not, your children think that you're an awesome parent and they love you very much. Parents usually dwell more on their mistakes rather than celebrate their successes. And so I want you to give yourself a pat on the back because you just watching this tells me that you care. 
and that you're trying to get the information. You're trying to learn as much as you can so that you can raise a healthy, joyful child. So thank you very much. And I just want you to celebrate that. And I want you to leave feeling empowered and that you can make the choices that you need to for your own family. You don't have to do what somebody else is telling you. Follow your intuition, not just about eating, but about how to raise your family, but continue to gather information, get feedback from your family, learn from experts, and then edit as you go and you pave your way of feeding your family with joy and love. Yes, joy and love to you all. And thank you so much for that beautiful, inspirational little uh, power-up speech right there. So we like to end these off with a little fast five questions. So whenever you're ready, I'm going to fire them off. <laughs> sure. All right. What's your favorite animal? Uh, I have to say a dog. Fair enough. Uh, if you could only eat one thing for the rest of your life, what would it be? <laughs> That's so hard. I just love chickpeas so much and they're just adorable and so cute and delicious. So I'd probably be chickpeas. I've never heard someone call chickpeas cute before. That's they're so, so cute. <laughs> <laughs> They are now that you mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite vegan film or documentary? Mm, I really love the game changers. I think it was just so well-made and it's one that I always feel very confident passing along to others. I feel like it's had such a huge impact too. So for now I'm going to say game changers. Absolutely. Yes. If you were stranded on a desert Island, who would be your companion? Oh my gosh, just one person. I'm a mother. <laughs> I'm going to cheat. I would say literally my two sons are my light and joy and everything in my life. So it'd be my two boys. They're my best friends. Your little chickpeas, I guess. Chickpeas. My little chickpeas. Yes. <laughs> they also love chickpeas. So it'll work out fine. We'll desert Island together with only chickpeas to eat. <laughs> Perfect. Sounds great. And the last one is, what is your favorite quote? Or it can also be an affirmation or a mantra. Mm, you're going to miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. So sometimes when you're afraid to try something and you've already pre-decided that it's not going to work out for you and you don't do it, obviously it's not going to work out for you because you didn't do it. So take a deep breath, have the courage and try it out. Because even if it doesn't work out for you, you learn something new. So I think that would be it. Beautiful. Yeah. I think that one's Wayne Gretzky, a NHL hockey player, famous hockey player. Yeah. Take the shot. Even if from this, your one takeaway is that I'm going to give my kids a few more plants. You're already making such a big impact in their life and in your life. You miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Thank you, Dr. Yami. And can you let everybody know where they can find you and keep in touch with you on social media? Yes. So I'm most active on Instagram. My handle on Instagram and Facebook is at the Dr. Yami. You mentioned my podcast. I would love it if everybody checked it out. It's called Veggie Doctor Radio. So just go to your favorite podcast player and check that out. And my website is dryami.com. And I also have veggiefitkids.com. And then my book, A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, that's available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook that I narrated myself. Excellent. I can't wait to check all of those out. So thank you again. Thank you. It was an honor. Thank you for tuning in to the Vegan Dharma Podcast. Keep in touch. Add me on Facebook and Instagram, Vegan Dharma Coach. If you're interested in one-on-one -on -one coaching to find your soul's purpose, send me a DM. Remember, you are more than this physical body. 
and we are meant to embody our soul's purpose. The world needs you just as you are. I will see you on the next episode of the Vegan Dharma Podcast.